The following is a special sports presentation of UltimateSportsTalk.com. A swing and a drive to deep right, away back, goal! UltimateSportsTalk.com now presents the Ohio Baseball Weekly Show, an in-depth look at the Cincinnati Reds and the Cleveland Indians. For the fifth consecutive year, we examine the teams and their progress throughout the baseball season. And now, the Ohio Baseball Weekly Show. Hey, good evening, everyone, and welcome to the Ohio Baseball Weekly Show. I'm Dave Mitchell. Glad to have you along on this Monday night as we sit back and talk about the Cleveland Indians and the Cincinnati Reds for another week. And it is a very entertaining week so far for the Cleveland Indians and the Cincinnati Reds. We'll get into that in just a little bit. Mark Donahue, our resident Reds expert, is going to be a little bit detained tonight as he is at a book signing. He'll be with us uh, about 9.15 to 9.30 here this evening to talk about what's going on with the Reds. But a lot of things actually this week is going on with the Reds and the Indians. Not only is tonight the first time draft night for Major League Baseball. The Reds, they came into tonight into the draft with the 11th pick, the 49th pick, and the 71st pick. But also the Indians have the 17th pick, the 42nd pick, and the 59th pick. And the Reds and Indians have already made their first picks. We'll go over that here in just a little bit. The Indians have totally reconstructed the left side of their infield. We're going to get into that also tonight. And... In case you didn't know, Devin Mezzarocco, well, he is going to be moved to left field, and he will become the Cincinnati Reds' new left fielder. So that should be extremely interesting. And, of course, for those of you who know, Mark and I have been balloting for that move by the Reds over the last couple of months. It's been my opinion that Devin Mezzarocco just gets hurt too much to be a full-time catcher for the Reds, and they need his bat in the lineup too much. And unfortunately, with him being hurt, he seems like he would come back for a couple of weeks via catching, then get hurt, and he'd be out of the lineup for a couple of weeks. Well, this hip injury that he has undergone here over the last, actually since about April 24th of the regular season, has kept him out. Now, it's keeping him out from catching, but it's not keeping him from hitting or playing in the field. It's some sort of hip impingement. Of course, Brian Price, he doesn't like to give away any of the major national secrets that the Reds may have, so he hasn't talked about uh, Mezzarocco's hip injury, but we're going to get into that with more with Mark Donahue when he comes in here in just about 15 or 20 minutes. As far as the Indians are concerned, well, as I said, they have totally reconstructed the left side of their infield. And if you've got any questions or comments tonight, let me just get this out of the way. A couple of house cleaning items. You can send us a tweet. My Twitter address is at OHBB Cohost. That's Ohio Baseball Cohost. OHBB Cohost. Or you can send us an email tonight. And my email address is dmitch at ultimatesportstalk.com. That's dmitch at UltimateSportsTalk.com. Well, the Indians, as they head into 
this week's action. They are off tonight. They have a 27-win, 29-loss record heading into tomorrow night's action. They're in fourth place in the American League Central Division. They're six games behind Minnesota. Nobody is anticipating that Minnesota is going to stay in first place of the Central Division. Yes, the Twins have been playing some outstanding baseball, but that is just something that they are probably not going to continue to do. As you take a look at the standings in the American League Central, Kansas City is in second place, and Detroit, who had lost eight in a row heading into the weekend, they are still in third place, a couple of games in front of the Indians. Minnesota has won 33 games and lost 23. Kansas City is just a game behind Minnesota at 31 and 23. Then comes Detroit at 30 and 28. They're four games out, and they've won two straight after that eight-game losing streak. And the Indians, they lost to Baltimore yesterday. They are 27 and 29. Seems like every time that they reach the 500 mark, the Indians then lose a game or two and end up back underneath the 500 mark. That being said, the Indians were 3-3 three and three on the week. I had a chance to go up to Progressive Field on Friday night and partake in Dollar Dog Night and take a look at the fireworks after the game a little bit. But what really disappointed me about the Indians on Friday night was their base running inexpertise. It's been one of the things that has driven me crazy. This team just does not play good fundamental baseball. A team that doesn't hit like the Indians team doesn't needs to rely upon playing good fundamental baseball. And unfortunately, that just has not occurred for the Indians for realistically the last couple of years. Last year, they were the worst defensive team in baseball. This year, they are one of the worst defensive teams in baseball. They're one of the worst hitting teams, although they are close to the top in the American League in runs scored, but that's only because they score their runs in bunches. For example, they scored 12 runs about a week ago in a game against Seattle and then could not score any more runs during the weekend, even though they did win three out of four in that series against Seattle. That being said, the Indians right now are making too many mistakes to win consistently. And because of that, they have decided that they are going to totally reconstruct the left side of their infield. That is something I have been advocating now over the last month. Not so much the third base position, even though last Monday night on the show, if you recall, I did start bringing up the fact that I thought the Indians should finally get rid of Lonnie Chisholm, that this experiment since the year 2012 just has not panned out for the Indians. Well, yesterday the Indians finally pulled the trigger. They sent Jose Ramirez and Lonnie Chisholm Hall to Columbus, to the minor leagues. And they are bringing up Zach Walters, whom they received from Washington a year ago in the Esdrubal Cabrera trade. And they're bringing up third baseman, 23-year-old rookie, Giovanni Urshela. Now, I agree with the Urshela call-up. I agree with that totally, even though the Indians, when they talk about bringing up Urshela, it's funny because 
it's a situation where they are using the excuse to bring up Urshela as the excuse not to bring up Francisco Lindor. Now, it's my opinion that Lindor should be brought up. That That's the case that I have, is that Francisco Lindor should be brought up to the major leagues. But the Indians have not done that as of yet. They have said that he has got a lingering injury problem, and they are not bringing Lindor up. Well, that lingering injury problem, to be honest, evidently isn't bothering him so much because he was just named the international player of the week, the International League Player of the Week. He hit 423 over the past week. He had 11 hits, 6 runs, a double, 2 triples, and a home run. He's been hitting the heck out of the baseball over the last 10 games, batting 350. And on the year, he's hitting 269 with 2 homers, 21 RBIs, 8 errors in the field, over 210 chances. Now you compare that to what Jose Ramirez was doing. He had eight errors in 153 chances. Now, yes, it's the difference between the majors and the minors, but the minor league fields are not as good as the major league fields. They are not as smooth. They are not as silky as the major league fields. So you would expect more errors at the minor league level than you would at the major league level. And Jose Ramirez has just been a total disaster at the shortstop position since this season began. Yeah, he had a good couple of months at the end of last year when they brought him up in the middle of July. Yeah, he did solidify the shortstop position to a certain extent. Ramirez has never been able to go in the hole for a grounder or go behind second for a grounder. He has limited range and is unable to get balls that are hit more than two or three feet to his left or right. That is not a good setup for a team that relies upon their pitching staff the way the Indians rely upon their pitching staff. Nonetheless, Jose Ramirez has been sent down. Now, his batting average also has been totally anemic. He's hitting 180 as he was sent down yesterday. But in the last 30 games, get a load of this stat. In the last 30 games, Ramirez was batting 177. In the last 15 games, he was batting 167. And in the last 7 games, Ramirez was hitting 105. In other words, over the last 30 games, Ramirez has gone considerably down. He has gotten worse as the season has gone along not gone any better. He just has not adapted to what the pitchers have been doing to him this year. I find it great that Ramirez is gone. Now, if the Indians are not going to bring up Francisco Lindor, I advocated last week that they bring up Zach Walters, and that's what they've done. They've brought up Zach Walters. But the funny thing is, is that they're bringing up Zach Walters at a time that he just is not hitting the baseball down in Columbus. Here's his stats from down in Columbus over the last few weeks. As you look at Zach Walters, his stats have been over the last 10 games, he's batting 194. He's got seven hits and 36 at-bats, only one RBI, no home runs, and he has struck out nine times in those 36 at-bats and has only walked twice. 
So his walk-to-strikeout ratio is abysmal. Now, I happen to think Zach Walters is going to be a good utility man as far as the Indians are concerned. Now, is he coming up to take the place of Mike Avillis? And Avillis will then become the full-time shortstop for the Indians? Or are they going to platoon these two, Walters and Avillis? Walters seems to be a better left-handed hitter. Avillis, of course, is a straight right-handed hitter. They could go with the platoon at shortstop. I don't like platooning shortstops. Outfield is okay. A couple other positions is all right. But as far as a shortstop is concerned, in order to have good, consistent defensive play, I think you've got to have a player out there full-time, constant, playing all the time. Now, if that's going to be a Villies, then let it just be a Villies. If it's going to be Zach Walters, then just let it be Zach Walters. If it's going to be Francisco Lindor, let's just bring up Lindor and let him play. And my contention, as far as Lindor is concerned, is that he is major league ready defensively right now. He can go in the hole. He's got a strong arm. He can throw guys out. Now, is he going to hit? Well, I'll tell you one thing. He's not going to hit any worse than Jose Ramirez has done at 180 on the season. But even if he would hit 180, he's going to be an improvement, a big improvement for the Indians at the shortstop position. That's the big thing. Now let's move over to third base, where the Indians have sent down Lonnie Chisenhall. Chisenhall has been questionable at best, as far as the Indians are concerned at third base. Last year, if you remember against Texas, he had a nine RBI game. First, first time that's been done for the Indians since 19, I think it was 91, might have been 1990, when Chris James did it. But nine RBIs in one game. Chisholm started out the first half of the year last year, and he was batting over 340. But Terry Francona never did have confidence in him hitting left-handed pitching. So they continued the platoon method for Chisholm to continue platooning at third with Avillis at times. And towards the end of the year, you could tell that Chisholm was not making the proper changes and was not adapting to the way that the pitchers were pitching to him. This year, he has gone through two streaks of 0 for 19. And yesterday, he snapped an 0 for 13 streak. This is before he was sent down to the minors. Currently, he's batting 208. He's got four homers, and he had 19 RBIs. Now, those stats heading into June may not sound bad, but Chisholm is not Brooks Robinson at third base. Definitely not. He is not a Gold Glove winner at third base. He's not somebody that you can stick at third and know that he is going to save you runs as far as his defensive play is concerned. In other words, he's not somebody that can carry himself and carry a ball club with his defense. That is just not Lonnie Chisholm. Lonnie Chisholm's got to be a 250 to 275 hitter for the Indians, hitting anywhere from 15 to 20 home runs. So they were coming in with Giovanni Urshela. Now, a lot of you will probably think, who's Giovanni Urshela? Well, 
Urshela played well during spring training, but he was not any threat to make the Major League Ball Club because he was coming off a knee injury that caused him to miss about 95% of the season a year ago. Urshela is 29 years old. He is a third baseman. He's always played third base. He knows how to play the position. He is one of the players that the Indians are high on, even as much as they are Francisco Lindor. At this point in time, down in the minor leagues, in just 20 games, because Urshela is coming off of another injury, he is hitting 276 with three homers, nine RBIs. He's got 12 strikeouts to two walks, and he's had three errors in 44 chances. Now, I'm looking forward to seeing Urshela. He's a right-handed hitter. He's got a gun for an arm. He is a power hitter, and I'm anxious to see him put into the lineup somewhere in the area of around 7th or 8th. My gut feeling is is that what the Indians will do is they will put Walters probably somewhere around the 7th position, or they will put Urshela at number 9, or they may flip-flop them. Nonetheless, you've got a right-handed hitter in Urshela that is going to be a great addition, I think, to this lineup. Now, is he going to come in and be the savior for this team? Absolutely not. He's going to upgrade the third base position immediately. That's, that's my feeling. I've seen him play at Columbus a couple of times, and he does have a good glove, and he should be able to handle the hot corner for the Indians. Now, what are they going to do with the shortstop position again? I can't really tell you. What they've been doing lately at the catching position is they've been rotating Jan Gomes and Roberto Perez because they don't want Gomes coming back after that sprained MCL to have to do a lot of crouching behind home plate. So a lot of changes being made for the Indians this week as far as what they have done on the left side of their infield. And when they go come home and play Seattle tomorrow night, Wednesday night, and Thursday afternoon, Urshela is probably going to start at third base. And my gut feeling is they're going to stick with Walters as the utility man, and it will be a Villies to be the full-time shortstop for the Indians, at least until probably the middle of July, possibly the middle of August. And if the Indians are, I don't even think it matters if they're in the race or not, I think you will probably see Francisco Lindor, unless Walters is having trouble at the plate or Urshela is having problems at the plate. Then you could see Lindor come up and Avilis move over to third and Urshela going back down. If Walters hits the baseball, I think Walters' best position, as far as the majors is concerned, would be third base. He is a shortstop, but I think he's best suited for third base. Urshela is a full-time third baseman. So that is where he will play. So we'll see what happens. I think Francisco Lindor has done enough for the Indians so far to warrant being brought up to the Major League Club. But then again, that's not saying anything because the, the Indians right now are back in the pennant race. They're ready to get going. They are only six games behind Minnesota in that Central Division. On the other hand, you've got the Cincinnati Reds, who are 24-31. and 31. They're in fourth place, 
and they are 13 games behind the team with the best record in the National League, and that's the St. Louis Cardinals. And over the past week, the Reds were 2-4, and four, and they're making a big move. And now joining us tonight, our resident Reds expert from down south in the Reds area, Mark Donahue. Mark, how are you doing tonight? I'm fine, David, and I apologize for being late, but I, in the interest of honesty to our millions of listeners, uh, I did want to say that I, I had a good reason for being late tonight. I got to meet one of my favorite authors of all time, David McCullough. Got to shake his hand and say hello and how much I enjoyed his speech tonight. I have uh, as an aside, for those history buffs out there, he just wrote a book about the Wright brothers, and he came to Dayton as kind of a kickoff for that. And it was a, it was a very, very interesting evening. And um, while I miss talking about the Reds, I sure enjoyed meeting David McCullough. Rumor has it you met the Wright brothers. <laughs> you know, the funny thing is, uh, I, I do have a link to them. Uh, my grandfather delivered their newspaper of all things, uh, when he was a boy, and I remember him telling me that every week uh, they would get him a brand new, whatever the year was, silver dime. Uh, I think the papers were like seven cents, and they gave him a three-cent tip, and that was a big deal back then. But he met them and delivered their papers for five or six years and uh, on Hawthorne Street over in Dayton, for those of you who are familiar with Dayton, over on the west side of Dayton. So it was uh, somewhat of a oblique connection, and I, I remember my grandfather talking about them uh, when I was a kid growing up. It didn't mean a lot to me back then. Uh, they, they seemed like two old guys who something about airplanes. <laughs> and, but as I got older, I, I began to appreciate it. But uh, thanks for carrying the ball for me, David. Uh, now we can get talking about the Reds and the Indians. Well, Mark, I guess the first thing I've, I've been talking about the Indians so far here over the last few minutes and talking about how they're totally reconstructing their left side of the infield. But I guess the question I've got to ask you is, I think the Reds and the Indians need to put us on their payroll because we've been advocating Devin Mesoraco moving to left field now for at least a month, probably a couple of months. I know that I've been advocating it, getting him out, getting him out from behind home plate. Tell us the update on that and why we should feel encouraged about Mesoraco going to left with the hip injury that he's got. Well, first of all, from a, from a medical perspective, according to what I've read and what I heard, that playing left field is not going to adversely affect him. It's not going to make his injury worse. And obviously, uh, not having to, to stoop and throw and, and get beat up behind the plate uh, would certainly give him a career option that if he does have injuries that he can't overcome if this hip is more than we think and he can't catch next year. Uh, you've got a guy capable of hitting 25 to 30 home runs in left field. And it was interesting what, what Devin had said was when he was in high school, he played shortstop. Uh, he caught two, but he, he was a starting shortstop. He played left field. Uh, he played some center field. He said he was the best athlete on his team, and that usually means you're going to play shortstop. But obviously, he's got a great arm, and uh, he's. It, I'll tell you, for a catcher, he's got speed. Uh, he, he runs well, so this is not a a move that is physically beyond him. This is something he can do, and I think for the most part, uh, Devin sees it as a way to prolong his career if things don't allow him to go behind the plate again. And I'll tell you, if I was a young man 
and I had uh, I had the capability of playing left field as opposed to catching. <laughs> There's not it's not even close. Not even well, how, close. How would you like to be How would you like to be the left fielder on a shallow fly ball with Mezzarocco, the shortstop, going back and the left fielder coming in and, and and not knowing where he is, looking up at the ball and nobody calling it. Well, let me ask you another question. How would you like to be Zach Cozart backing into left field and your left fielder is Devin Mezzarocco? That's a good point, too. <laughs> yeah. He may, uh, uh, you know, he, the, the problem in playing left field, it's not catching the fly balls. Uh, left field has the easiest throw, so that's not going to be an issue for him. The problem he's going to have with left field is the ball hit right at him. Because it, it, it's, uh, you, you get a lot of right-hand hitters hitting line shots out there, and left fielders have a tendency, when they're inexperienced, to come in on the ball, their first step is in, or they're, you know, they, they, they make the wrong read on the ball. The hardest ball for an outfielder to, to catch is a line drive hit right at them because you don't know if it's going to be carrying over your head or it's going to be dropping in front of you. So that first step you take, uh, especially when it's, when it's off the bat of a left-hander, it's got some spin to it, is, is that, that difficult, it's a difficult play for any outfielder, but left-fielders particularly because you have more right-hand hitters in baseball. So you're going to get a lot more fly balls out there. Uh, the good thing is it's the shortest amount of distance to cover. In right in left field, so you know he's he's got the physical tools to do that. He's got the speed. He's got the arm. He clearly is a great athlete. Uh, if he goes to the plate 500 times, he's going to hit 25 or 30 home runs. So you know the only thing is, can he come in on the ball and go back on the ball and not have a single go for a double? Well, and another thing too is those balls that are hit right at you, they tend to slice. Well, they they also rise and they and they sink and, and there's a I remember I played center field a lot of times in my life and a ball that's hit right on the screws it has no spin to it it comes at you like a knuckleball there's there's no there's no side spin in fact the ball that has a little slice to it it gives you a depth perception to it that's actually easier to catch it's the ball hit right at you. And hit right on the screws, and it's it's like a, like I said, it's like a knuckleball that it, that moves constantly on the way out to you, and that's the hardest play for any outfielder to make. I, I think this is a great move for the Reds. I really do. I think this is an opportunity for to get Mezzarocco out from behind home plate and get him somewhere where he can settle in and stay in that cleanup position for the Reds, and I think that helps them for years to come. Well, I think their their first. Inclination or their first, uh, yeah, I wouldn't say Devin Mesoraco is a great defensive catcher. I'd say he's adequate at this point. Uh, I think uh, Barnhart is a better catcher defensively than Mesoraco. So if Mesoraco can play left field, then that certainly gives the Reds the bat they've been looking for out there for God knows how long. We've been talking about this. Where's that bat? in left field that every other team seems to have but the Reds and the Indians, although the Indians now uh, maybe have somebody out there who can, who can do it. But this could help the Reds offensively, and I don't think they're going to be hurt behind the plate defensively. Now, uh, I didn't see the draft tonight, who they picked up in the draft, but uh, it wouldn't surprise me 
uh, if they're looking for a catcher? Well, ask and you shall receive, Mr. Donahue, because the Reds did select 11th tonight. They've also got the 49th and the 71st pick. And the Reds' first pick was a catcher out of Kennesaw Mountain High School, Tyler Stevenson. Now, this kid is 6'4", 225 pounds. Scouts have bemoaned the lack of catching in this draft, so Stevenson's emergence this spring qualifies him as a pleasant surprise to those scouts because some evaluators liked him more as a pitcher last summer. He's got a 90-mile-an-hour fastball and a hard slider, but now he's the consensus best catcher available. Um, He's got strong hands, according to this report, and he's got a strong arm, which translates into quality receiving and throwing skills, and they say he's got surprising agility for a 6'4", 210-pounder. That does seem a little tall to be a catcher, 6'4". Yeah, Bill Freehand and some other guys were that big. I I think Socia was, what, 6'2", 6'3", he's a big guy. Uh, you know, but, Salvador Perez with Kansas City, 6'5". Yeah, yeah. Uh, it, it's the, the problem they have is giving a low target for a guy who's you know throwing a sinker. But what do they say about his power? Well, what they say is he's got a combination of strength, bat speed, and a loft in his swing, which translates into huge raw power. But there is some concerns about his ability to make contact against pro-level pitching. But I don't see that as being a problem because I think anybody that you see coming in, especially out of high school, everybody's got that same concern. Well, if he's a high school kid that size, uh, <laughs> he's going to be growing some. And uh, with the, the thing you look at for a young kid like that, uh, you're right. They can The contact will come if he's got what I call natural power, not beefed up power but power that is generated by a bat swing, bat speed, then you've got something that you can work on. If you don't have bat speed or you've got bat speed generated by musculature uh, where guys lifting weights, that bat slows down. It doesn't, it doesn't increase because they're tied up. If they've got, it's like when, it, when a pitcher, they call it easy gas. And what they mean is the guy throws gas. He throws hard. But it's easy. He has, he has an effortless motion. And it's the same thing with a hitter. If a guy has to load up on every pitch, and some guys can do that at high school and even college, and they can, they can catch up with that pitching. You don't catch up with it in the big leagues. You have to have a naturally quick bat, or these guys will overpower you with fastballs and hard sliders. So that's an interesting scouting report. And I honestly, I did not hear about the draft. I, I felt a little unprepared today, but... Uh, for the show because uh, I knew I was going to be around at the beginning and I didn't hear what happened in the draft, but it does not surprise me that the two stories are linked. And I wonder what the Reds would have done had Mesoraco not had this injury. I think they would have gone, I think they would have gone another direction. And I think this, this pick right here solidifies the fact that the Reds are thinking, let's get Mesoraco out from behind the plate. And this is the first thing that the Reds have done, Mark, over the past month that I have truly been excited about. And another thing, too, here is these scouts that put together this report, they say that Stevenson's frame and skills remind them of Matt Weeters from Baltimore, their catcher. Yeah, but it took a long time for Weeters to develop. You remember, he was the next thing. 
and he came up and he got his head handed to him the first year or two in the big league. So uh, this kid at 18, he's got a long way to go to be ready for the big leagues. But uh, they say catching is the quickest path to baseball to the major leagues, and quicker than pitching, which quicker than just about any skill position. And if you can hit, if you can hit behind the plate, did did I hear you say he's a switch hitter? No, he just bats right handed. That's right. Okay. Well, that's okay. <clears throat> but this, uh, I, I'm encouraged by that too. And if this kid can develop in the next two or three years, which is not impossible for a catcher, uh, what will prohibit him from coming up, even if he has a good bat, is if he is weak behind the plate. And that, don't forget Mezzarocco. It took him a long time. I mean, he had some really down years in the minors where people were questioning whether he was all that. I mean, he was the number one draft pick, and I, I think one year he had you know two ten or two fifteen something like that in the minors, and he had to work his way through it. But all of a sudden, he burst out last year, and uh, that's an exciting pick for the Reds. I, I'm really happy they did that. Well, and if he doesn't end up with the Reds, he can always go to Georgia Tech, which I guess is his backup plan if the Reds don't want to ante up the money. Well, they wouldn't have drafted him. I don't know what the slot is for that. It's it's, it's in the millions of dollars for that for that slot. Uh, but uh, they wouldn't have taken. They wouldn't have wasted a pick if they didn't think they were going to sign him. Now, here's the Indians' pick. They were picking number seventeen, six spots behind the Reds. You're going to recognize this game, Mark, or this name. I believe you will. Brady Aiken. Brady Aiken was the first player selected a year ago by the Houston Astros. They agreed on a $6.5 million bonus, but the team became concerned about his elbow following a post-draft physical. They cut their offer to $5 million, and he turned it down and re-entered the draft this year, and the Indians picked him up. Here in the, with the 17th pick, he's a left-handed pitcher, and he is he is joining Tim Belcher and Danny Goodwin as the only number one overall picks not to sign. He was going to go to UCLA, but he decided to pitch instead for IMG Academy postgraduate team, which made him eligible for this draft. And he did leave his lone start for the team. In the middle of March, this is the only thing that concerns me, but as long as he's got it out of the way now, who cares? He made 13 pitches and underwent Tommy John surgery six days later. So he's out for the year, but he had no physical problems ever before when he played for San Diego's Cathedral Catholic High. He showed an advanced command of his fastball, which then was 92 to 94 miles an hour, and it reached up to 97. He added more power and depth to his curveball and displayed one of the best change-ups in the 2000. 14 draft. So I think that's a great pickup for the Indians. I do too. And did they say uh, when he's coming back, when he, when he's ready to throw again? He should be ready to throw next year for spring training. I think it's a great pick. I really do. I, I kind of wish the Reds had gone after him. They certainly could have had him. But again, with the Reds, they, they believe me, they've had this discussion about Mezzarocco for a while. And the fact they picked a catcher, I think, is an indication that, you know, if Mesoraco's healthy, uh, he's only, what, 26, 27 years old? The guy could be around for another 10 years, so you wouldn't draft a catcher if you had 100% confidence in your starter, who was an all-star last year. 
And just in case you're interested, here's an oddity that kind of pins Stevenson and Aiken together, Mark. Both were born on August 16th, 1996. They'd make up a good all-star team for that year. Absolutely. Now, let's get back to the Reds and what, what else they did this week. Jumbo Diaz is gone. What happened to him? A 6.45 ERA was probably the, the biggest point. And, you know, I, I don't know this. Uh, it, it's only presumption or, or assumption on my part, things I saw. But this guy, to me, never seemed like he gave any of his pitches a thought. Now, he may have. It's just the perception I got watching him on TV and down at the ballpark. He, he just gripped it and ripped it. Which is fine, but when you're th- the other day he threw a pitch at 100 miles an hour, and the next day he's released. The Reds saw something that the, the other team saw because he would just get the ball, he would throw fastballs right over the middle of the plate, and in some cases, especially a big guy like that, he's, he has some deception, but the, the hitters figured out. And he was very effective last year. He was not effective at all this year. He would hang... He, he hung some sliders this year over the middle of the plate that I could have hit, just about anybody could have hit. And, of course, major league hitters hit him 500 feet. So either he goes and has some kind of a lobotomy in the minors to make him at least think before he throws a pitch, or the Reds saw something that uh, the other teams were seeing, and this guy just was not getting guys out. Well, it surprises me that they actually gave up on Jumbo Diaz after a year and a half, and they're still hanging on to J.J. Hoover after the abysmal season that he had a year ago. And what also surprises me, Mark, is Brian Price actually making the statement to the media that when they got rid of Jumbo Diaz, that they wanted to go with the young pitchers on their major league staff and start rebuilding that staff. Well, just a clarification, um <coughs> Pardon me. J.J. Uh, Hoover is 4-0 this year and has a, an ERA less than Chapman's. Now, I'm not a Hoover fan yet. I've not been turned over to his <laughs> his comeback year. But uh, he, he's been pitching well for the Reds. Uh, the guy that I don't understand is with this organization is Badenhop. Why is he with this team? And... His ERA is, what, 7.5 or 6.5, something like that. And he has not been effective all year. He gives up a run every time he comes in. And I, honest to God, I don't think he's had a clean inning this year. So the Reds do some strange things. I, I think Diaz needed to be sent out. But uh, there's other problems in that team, too. Such as? Well, the offense. They don't have anybody that they can depend on besides Votto. Everybody else is very inconsistent. Jay Bruce hit two home runs yesterday. Uh, it's the first time he's had a couple home runs in a game this year. But now he could go 0 for 18. And that's the problem when you have hitters like that. They swing hard. When they make contact, it's great. They just don't make contact very often. And that's the Reds need more consistency and it, it, when you have Billy Hamilton, who is hitting 220, and you have now Zach Kozar, who's coming back to earth, he's under 250. Jay Bruce is still in the 220s. Uh, I like all those guys. 
but at some point you have to have more consistency in the in the offensive side. And you know the starting pitching has been up and down, but the killer for this team has been the middle relief and a lack of consistency offensively. That's that's why the team is 13 games out of first place. Mark, I want to flip over to the Indians here very quickly and the reconstruction that they have done now on the left side of their infield, dropping Jose Ramirez and Lonnie Chisholm. And believe me, if I could, I'd be doing cartwheels over this move. And bringing up Giovanni Urshela to play third and Zach Walters. Now, as I said at the top of the show before you got on, you know, they're bringing up Zach Walters, and I'm really not upset about it. But here's here's the situation, Mark. Zach Walters in his last 10 games is batting 194 with 7 hits and 36 at-bats. One RBI, no homers, 9 strikeouts, and, tw- and 2 walks. Francisco Lindor is coming off being just named today the International League Player of the Week. Over the past week, he batted 423, 11 hits, 6 runs, a double, 2 triples, and a home run. He's batted over 350 in his last 10 games, and for the season he's batting 270 with 2 homers, 21 RBIs, 8 errors, and 210 chances. How much longer do you think the Indians can sit back and justify not not so much to the fans, but to Lindor not bringing him up. I don't think that's the big issue, Lindor or the fans. I'd be more concerned about the impact of something like this on teammates. Like, if this guy can't be brought up based on his performance, that would be, cause me, even at the major league level, these guys can read the paper. They've seen Lindor in spring training, and if he's everything you say he is, and I believe he is, you're right, at some point, uh, they have to explain why. That's that. If they just did that, they say, well, he doesn't go to his left well, or he's not turning the double play well, or his, his on-base percentage is too low for us. Okay, their reasoning today was he's still suffering from a lingering injury, and they don't want to bring him up just yet because of that. That injury must really be bothering him because, like I said, over the last week he's batting four twenty three and just was named the player of the week. What well, is think of what he was doing before he got hurt? Yeah. I, I mean, he yeah, he wasn't playing very well, but now evidently he's hurt and he's, he's hitting well. Well, it's obviously a matter of time before a talent like that is called up. Was he 23, 22? He's, tw- he's 21. 21, my gosh. That's awfully young for a shortstop. He really is. And um, I thought he was older than that. And if, if he's only 21 years old, um, they want to be sure. They really do. And, and the Indians are still in it. So I think it's a matter of time this year before he's called up. But if I was, oh, I think he'll be up, I think he'll be up around the middle of July, sometime in August. Yeah, and I think that's probably a pretty good move. Uh, you know, let him get his feet under him at, at, at AAA, and he seems to be catching on down there. But don't forget, you don't want to bring a kid up and then have him, you know, go 0 for 28 or, you know, 2 for 40, 2 for 40. And you've lost all that confidence he's built up. So I can understand it at 21 years old. If he was 23, 24, different story. Well, it's like, it's like I was speaking with our producer, Greg Mitchell, earlier today. If I'm Terry Francona, I would do this with Lindor 
and I definitely would do it with Urshela. I would tell Urshela, I'd bring him into my office tomorrow when he comes up for the ball game, and I'd say, hey, look, you cannot do any worse than the guy that had the job before you. So relax and play ball. Well, I don't think any manager would say that and diss the other player, but I see your point. Uh, the idea of just relaxing and, and, and playing the game that you know how to play, I think is the best message to give to a kid. But you can talk all you want to these young kids. They, they've waited their whole life. These, these kids, 22 years old, this kid has been playing ball for probably 15 years. <laughs> you know, he's been around. This is his dream. He's experienced. You can't say don't get nervous or don't try too hard. It's, it's beyond anybody's explanation or, or uh, whatever you're going to say to the kid to not have them have the nerves. They simply have to play through it, and that's what I'm talking about Lindor. You, you want to put him in the position where he can succeed, and easing him in, whether it's resting him because he has an injury or taking time to bring him up, I don't think it's a bad deal. I really don't. These kids, are, they've, they're going to be nervous. You, know, you can't help that, but you want to remove as much of the other obstacles as you can before they come up. Well, I can tell you if Urshela hits like he did in spring training, we have seen the last of Lonnie Chisholm. Uh, we have probably seen the last of Jose Ramirez as far as the Indians are concerned. He, he will probably stay in Columbus. They're going to move him back to second base. I, I think he's done as far as the Indians are concerned. And I'm excited about seeing Urshela play third base tomorrow night starting against Seattle. That That is the first guy... He he will make me excited about watching a new player come into the Indians but more Dave, so than probably anyone except for Lindor. But Dave, I remember a few years ago when Chisinau came up, he was going to be one of the guys that was going to be around. What happened to him? He just never adapted. He he constantly is going after uh, the slider away, constantly. And he just does not adapt. And I think another thing, too, and I'm going to be critical of Terry Francona here. I think Francona did him a disservice a year ago. When Chisholm Hall in the early part of the year was batting 340, 350, and he was just coming off the nine RBI game that he had in Texas on a Thursday night. And the very next night on Friday night, because Texas was throwing a left-hander, Francona sat him, and I think that did a lot. After that, Frank uh, Chisenhall never hit the ball the same after that nine RBI night. And I attribute it to the fact that, hey, if you if you got a horse, if you've got an American pharaoh that keeps winning, just let him keep going. If you got a batter that keeps hitting, why are you sitting him down? Let you know it's like a guy in a basketball game that has a heat check shot. He's hitting so many shots in a row. You know you're going to let him throw those shots up because you want to make sure that you don't take him out when he's hot. And that's exactly what Francona did with Chisholm Hall, and I think that destroyed any confidence that Chisholm Hall had at the plate. And after that, he went right downhill and ended up hitting about 260 for the season. And he just has never been able to get it going this year. What's his average this year in home run, home runs? Two oh eight with four home runs. 
I know he hit one against the Reds last year. <laughs> I saw that. Uh, I, I really thought he was going to be uh, – who who's the third baseman you guys traded to us a few years ago that came and went and hit like 210? Oh, Jack Hanahan. That's the guy. Yeah, and, and Chisenhall took his place, and everybody thought that he was going to be the third baseman for the years to come. As a matter of fact – uh, the Indians had a trade with the Cubs, and I don't remember exactly who was all involved, but I know Starlin Castro was part of it. And the Cubs wanted Lonnie Chisenhall, and the Indians wouldn't give him up. Make that trade offer again. Oh, believe me. Ab- absolutely. Um, Mark, today in Reds history, want to want to let you know this one. In 1920, Ed Rush was ejected from a game for taking a nap in center field. Come Can on, you believe Dave. that? No, I don't believe that. He fell asleep while manager Pat Moran argued with the umpires and was ejected for holding up play because he wouldn't wake up. <laughs> that, that doesn't sound like a sleep. That sounds like a hangover. Yeah, that, that's probably what it was. Too many uppers on that that day. <laughs> You know, but, hey, while we've got an opportunity, now, did you do your homework for tonight? David, I I really didn't. I'm sorry, but I can probably wing it. No, we'll just put it off till next week. Oh, darn. Yeah, we'll just put it off till next week. But, uh, so we'll do our all-star ballots next week. But I do want to congratulate, like we do each and every year, the state champion baseball teams from this past weekend in the state of Ohio and the state champion softball teams. In Division One, right down there next to you, Cincinnati Moeller won another state baseball championship. In Division Two, the Defiance Bulldogs won another baseball championship. Clayton Kershaw is from Defiance. Division Three, Canton Central Catholic won the Division Three championship. And Newark Catholic won the Division Four state baseball championship. So congratulations to those four teams. Have you ever seen that Moeller team play? I have not, but I was in the library the other night. I think it was Saturday night. I was doing some studying, and I ran across a guy who had seen Moeller play, and he knew the Moeller coach, and he said that the Moeller coach was not concerned at all about the state championship game. Now, the state championship game, mind you, they win 16 to nothing. Yeah. But he said he was very concerned about getting out of uh, southeastern Ohio because that's you know Cincinnati is one of the best baseball cities in the United States. Year mm-hmm. after year, turn out great players, a great great system down there. They have a great youth league that complements the high school and even the college. So uh, it's not a surprise that Moeller did it again. But I'd be surprised if if there's not four or five guys in the first round taking it from Cincinnati. Well, and then let's let's congratulate the state champion softball teams in Division One, Asheville Taze Valley, won Division One, and Division Two it was Granville. Division Three was Warren Champion, and I saw Warren Champion play. Mark, I had the honor of doing their regional semifinal game against Waynedale High School. Waynedale had the lead five to one going into the bottom of the seventh inning against Warren Champion. Warren Champion scored four runs in the bottom of the seventh to tie it and another run in the bottom of the ninth to win it. And that was their miracle game. And they ended up winning the state championship with two 4 nothing blankings 
in the state semifinals and then the state championship game. So Warren Champion won Division Three, and Shadyside won Division Four. So congratulations to all those schools. Well, quite, quite an accomplishment, and those uh, that team that came back from four runs, they'll never forget that, nor will the team that lost ever forget that. Oh, I won't forget it, and I was broadcasting the game. I, I will never, I will never forget that, Mark, because um, and Warren Champion is a team that is dominated by, believe this or not, freshmen and sophomores. They they are dominated by freshmen and sophomores. Uh, were there any errors against that team? No. In the ninth inning? No, none. No, they just they just pounded the ball. Waynedale's pitcher ran out of gas, and that that was the end of the game. She just could not get uh, the final out. And wow. finally she did after the game was tied up at 5-5. But at that point in time, Mark, you knew it was over. You, it was just one of those feelings that you just knew knew the game was over. So Warren, And that's Warren Champion's sixth state championship. That's amazing accomplishment. Congratulations to them. Congratulations to all of them. Mark, another thing I wanted to bring up tonight before we round out tonight's show was something that happened on Friday night in Boston. And I'm sure you probably heard about this was – the lady that was hit in the head by the broken bat off of the uh, bat of Brett Lowry, it, it broke his bat off just above the handle, flew into the stands, and evidently it hit this lady smack dab in the forehead, and she never saw it coming, and her six-year-old son was sitting there right next to her, and the emergency crews that tended to the woman said they had never seen that much blood in all their lives. They wheeled her off the field on a stretcher, and she is in the hospital, but she is expected to be okay. She's expected to survive and be all right. But realistically, Mark, I mean, we talk, we've talked a lot about pitchers being hit and whether or not they should, they should use masks out on the mound. I'm really surprised that this doesn't happen more often. Well, I, I don't know how many times I've said it on this show, you can go back and check the tapes, people. Uh, it is a matter of time before somebody is killed at a Major League Baseball game. And something before I finish that statement, why do they have a backstop, and why do they have netting behind home plate to keep the foul balls from going into the stands right behind home plate? That's right. So what's the difference? A line drive can come off the bat at say 100 miles an hour and you have people protected behind home plate, why would you not protect people down the third baseline or the first baseline when a ball can come into there at 110 miles an hour and take somebody's head off? I've said this for, for years, and I remember in high school, I, I, I did not hit the ball, but one of my teammates hit a ball down the right field line, but right behind first base, and hit some lady in the head, and I thought she was dead. Now, you can't put backstops, I guess, on every high school field in America. You couldn't afford it. But you certainly can put some netting up around the the areas that are most likely to get line drives, and that's right down the lines. And as recently as two or three years ago, my wife and I were at a Dayton Dragons game down here, and a guy hit, a, it wasn't even a line drive, it was a one-hopper. I put my hand out because it was headed right from my wife's head. She was on my right. And a guy beat me to it on her right. He put his hand out to stop the ball, and it broke his hand. Mm. And 
you know, it, this this is going to happen. If they don't get protection on the pitchers and the coaches, somebody is going to die. And then they're going to say, gee, we got to make some changes to protect people. Mark, have you been to a game this year? No, I have not. Okay, Friday night was my first game. And I will tell you this. I felt completely out of place with this clock, clock uh, timing itself down from two and a half minutes in between every inning. It just felt strange. And then the clock ran from 18 seconds every time there was a runner, there wasn't a runner on from the time that the catcher caught the baseball. And that's how long the clock ran, 18 seconds, and the pitcher had to deliver the next pitch. <laughs> well, uh, it's, it's comical that they're trying to shorten the games. When all the, the games are fine, it's the commercials which they refuse to, how can they not identify that as the main culprit? It is the main culprit. They have two and a half minutes of commercials between every inning, every half inning. That's five minutes. That's 45 minutes of commercials for a baseball game. If they just cut that down by 10 minutes, 12 minutes, 15 minutes, the the games aren't slow. It's the commercials that are slow. But they, they never want to talk about that. And, Mark, I said at the top of the show before you got on, I think the Reds and Indians should hire us on as consultants because we had already talked about Mezzarocco. I had already talked about Chisholm and Ramirez going down way before the Indians decided on this move. And the other thing is, you and I have talked about this, about it is not the game that is taking so long. It is the commercials. And another thing that I have said over the last two years is, you want to speed up the game, call a strike a strike. Well, that would certainly help, but even if you did that, it's it, it would have you might change two or three minutes in a game. <clears throat> if you want to change change it big time, take away fifteen minutes of advertising or twenty minutes, and then, now you've got every game being around two hours, two hours and ten minutes, which is very. As a matter of fact, if you look at pro football and NBA basketball with all the timeouts, even college basketball. These are all three, three-and-a-half-hour, sometimes four-hour events because of all the timeouts for TV. TV is the culprit here, not, not, not the players themselves or a guy stepping out of the batter's box. That's not what's doing it. Well, and the absolute worst thing at an NFL game, if you ever go watch an NFL game in person, the absolute worst thing are the TV timeouts. Everybody's just standing around for three minutes. Yeah, I agree. And there, there's nothing being done. Have you, have you been to an NFL football game, attended one? I'm sure you have. Yes. Well, it, it's the worst sport to watch live because of all the timeouts. It is unbelievable how, yeah. how much dead air there is and players standing around doing nothing because of, you know, two and a half to three minute commercials and station breaks. It's, it's obscene. I hate to go to a pro football game. I'd rather stay at home. And during those commercial breaks, I'll go to the bathroom, get something to eat. <laughs> paint the house, whatever I have to do. Uh, but going to a football game when it's you know 28 degrees and the wind's blowing is not my idea, but a lot of fun. No, and the absolute worst timeout, the stupidest timeout that I think I've ever seen in professional sports is the timeout <laughs> that they have right after the extra point. They come back, they do the kickoff, and then they have another timeout after the guy runs it back before they ever get the ball. That's the stupidest timeout. That's right. <laughs> Well, so anyway, we, we can, hey, what do, 
What? I'm sorry? We could solve a lot of ills here, you know, Dave, if you and I just take over. We could. We could. You know, we, we would have had Mezzarocco in left field at the end of April. That's right. That's right. You know, I, I would have sent Jose Ramirez down right away. But, that again, that's that's another story. What do the Reds have going this week? They've got Philadelphia tonight, and then what? Uh, they have Philadelphia for three games, and then they go on the road to Chicago. And uh, that is going to be a four-game series up there. And uh, I, I think the the Reds will be put out of their mercy in Chicago. And, uh, you know, we said last week the Reds had to win six of the next nine. Well, they're, unless they even if they win the next three against three weak teams, um, the best they can do is win five of nine. Well, and they're on uh, Sunday Night Baseball, too, on ESPN. That's right. Now, the Indians this week, they're off today, but they play Seattle in a three-game set. Tomorrow night, Wednesday, and then Thursday afternoon, a businessman special at noon. And then they go to Detroit Friday, Saturday afternoon, and Sunday afternoon. Mark, very quickly, you surprised that the Cavs won a game in Golden State? No. I, I picked the Cavs to win it. I, I think they I think they can win it. I think LeBron is on a mission. And I, yesterday he looked... <laughs> He looks like a monster. He, I, mean, I don't mean that in a negative way. He's just so strong and so powerful. Uh, nobody can stop this guy. And I think he's going out there to, to leave a message to Michael Jordan that, hey, Michael, there's somebody else in the party. Well, we'll see what happens. They play again. Game three tomorrow night in Cleveland. Game four on Thursday night. That's going to do it for us. Thanks, Mark. Thank you, David. We'll talk to you again next week. That's going to do it for tonight's show. Our thanks to Mark Donahue and also our our producer, Greg Mitchell. Don't forget, on Thursday night, we will have the Ultimate Sports Talk Show at 7 o'clock. I'll be on the air, and we'll talk about the Game 4 between the Cavs and the Golden State Warriors. But until then, our thanks go out to you, most of all, for listening. Be back again next Monday night at 9 o'clock with another Ohio Baseball Weekly Show. I'm Dave Mitchell for Mark Donahue. Good night. Kids, kids have won it. Bobby Thompson had done it. And Yogi read the comics all the while. Rock and roll was being born. Marijuana we would scorn. So down on the corner, the national pastime went on trial. We're talking baseball. Klazuski, Campanella, talking baseball. The man and Bobby Feller, the scooter, the barber, and the nuke. They knew them all from Boston to Dubuque, especially Willie, Mickey, and the Duke.